Welcome to another episode of Perspectives by Women's Securities Finance. My name is Melissa Gao, and I'm head of IHS Markets Securities Finance Product Specialist and Consulting Teams. I am also a proud and engaged member of the Women in Securities Finance Group and your host for today's podcast. For those of you who are just becoming familiar with Women in Securities Finance, it's an industry group dedicated to fostering communications and empowering women collaborating and sharing insights in the securities finance community. So today we will be discussing SFTR, which is a topic that's garnered a tremendous amount of headlines for our industry over the past few months, weeks, years. And the objective today is really to bring SFTR information to those of us who don't live and breathe it every day. So sort of an abridged or condensed version of the important things we should know about this critical topic. So I'm very pleased to have with me today two experts in this market conversation. Catherine Talks, who's the product line manager at Univista, who runs their exposure reporting suite, and Phil Morgan, who is the CEO of Pyram. So Catherine and Phil, can I ask you to introduce yourselves? Hello, I'm Catherine Talks. I am a product line manager at Univista, responsible for our exposure reporting suite. Univista is our award-winning trade repository for the London Stock Exchange, and we're very happy to be here speaking on this webinar for Women in Securities Finance. Hi there, Phil Morgan, CEO of Pyram. We're a post, leading post-trade provider in the securities finance space and a proud supporter of Women in Securities Finance. Great. Thank you both. I'm very happy to have you with us today. So Phil, can I kick off with you? So can you set the stage for us? Just give us a recap in terms of where we are with SFTR implementation timelines and deadlines. Absolutely. Thank you. So phase one and two were originally due to go live in April 2020, but due to the COVID situation and global pandemic, there was a three-month delay implemented. So phase one and two go live was delayed to July. So a few months ago, and then more recently, the phase one and two was impacting the sell side and credit institutions. And the phase three go live, which occurred on October the 12th, which was incorporating the buy side asset managers insurance has obviously now been live for two weeks. So fully live for most of the institutions affected. It's been a long, long number of years prepping for this. And I'm glad to say, broadly speaking, it's gone pretty well, but I guess I would say that because I'm a service provider, but maybe over to Catherine to give your opinion on how it's gone from a TR and a regulated perspective. Thank you, Phil. So I think SFTR has been a very interesting go live. We saw a lot of engagement with firms, with various industry bodies and with the regulators. So there was a lot of industry buy-in very early on. And I think that engagement's really perpetuated in the statistics that we've seen at the Trade Repository. For instance, we've had an average of about a 98% acceptance rate, and that acceptance rate has continued right into the phase three reporting. So we're seeing very continued, very good statistics with very few exceptions that are happening in the Trade Repository. Great. Thank you. So what do you think were some of the key lessons that you learned in phases one and two that were helpful in the successful deployment in phase three? We went from sell-side implementation to a buy-side implementation. So were there things that happened along the way that made for a smooth phase three implementation? I think from my perspective, you know, the buy-side firms affected in phase three are facing many of the same challenges as the sell-side counterparties who went live in July particularly around data availability, sources, and quality of data, along with dealing with validation and ISO standard complexity. 
But I think what's really notable is the way all participants and elements affected in all three phases is how really we've got together as an industry and cooperated early. And I think the results we're seeing, maybe in comparison to other reporting regulations such as EMEA, I think really show the benefit of this. So I think phase three has benefited from another three months post go live of the sales side, but ultimately the proof was really put in a number of years ahead of time by everyone really getting together and working cohesively as an industry to make a positive outcome, which i glad to say is where we've arrived today. I'd definitely echo that. I think well, we've seen a lot of engagement. The extension that firms had ahead of the phase one and two reporting has allowed firms to undertake more testing. And we've seen a lot of firms being very, very engaged for some significant time now. There's definitely been a lot more testing that we've seen compared to other regulations. And I think the engagement that firms have had with the industry bodies, learning from the lessons of each other and coming up with a common understanding like a global language around reporting that means that implementation has been done early and in advance. The buy side did have some different challenges because the reporting is at beneficial owner level, which means that rather than the block allocation model that you would genuinely see, the buy side have had to provide allocation information up to the sell side in order for their reporting to be met ahead of time. We've actually seen a number of firms go live early because of that. They have had all of their data in order. They've been putting in best practices and they're ready to report in advance of their phase. So there's been a lot of engagement and there's definitely been those lessons that have been learned from the earlier phases of reporting. But there still are some significant nuances and there's still some considerable challenges. As Phil mentioned, the data availability, especially the LEI of issuers, has been something very broadly discussed in the market and it continues to be an issue. If you're trading on an issuer that is within the EU and it doesn't have an LEI, that report just can't be accepted at the trade repository. It's one of the validation rules. And that's been an ongoing challenge that we've seen throughout the phases that are reporting. I absolutely agree. I think compared to when we initially did our market analysis two or three years ago, that LEI coverage has significantly evolved and progressed. Definitely there are areas of improvement, but whilst it was a big bang from a reporting perspective, actually from a data coverage and finessing point of view, it wasn't a big bang. It'll be more of an iteration and evolution over time to get us closer to perfection, if ever that's achievable. Perfection is quite a lofty goal, Phil. So I'm glad you think that's achievable. It's it's our our own. It's our own. (laughs) Perfection is our goal. Um, In terms of any unintended consequences or behavioral changes as a result of SFTR, is there anything noteworthy to comment on either processes that have been identified as becoming more efficient or anything around innovation that we see coming out of this regulation? From our perspective and the engagement that we've had, what we noticed, especially in the buy side, was a number of firms have real legacy systems. This isn't a market sector that's been affected by a regulation such as this before. I know that SFTR is infamously quoted as shining the light on the securities market. And what we've seen is that firms have really taken this as an opportunity to invest in new processes and have a look at different automation and market innovation that's taking place. And we've definitely seen that. There's been the rise of vendors that we've not seen entering into this space before. We're seeing more pre-matching and more market-leading technologies emerging. And I think that's going to continue. I think the rate of evolution that we're seeing is definitely increasing, and it can only increase as we head forward 
forward into a post-SFTR and more of a CSDR framework? I totally agree. I think from an SFTR perspective, improvements have been seen, but I think it's an interesting and maybe more of a philosophical discussion because I'm not sure we'll ever get to the truth, but the fact that it went live at the same time as COVID is a really interesting piece in the sense that, or an interesting discussion, some of the manual processes that institutions or participants were reliant on headcount doing with the COVID situation, some of those headcounts were unable to physically get into the offices. Therefore, it was twofold. You saw a greater understanding of the processes and transparency as a result of SFTR combined, but with this situation where the ability to throw bodies at a problem was no longer a solution because you couldn't actually get people into the office. So those two things combined have shown a real lack of appetite, frankly, in the market for non-automated solutions and non-STP solutions. So I think we're seeing a kind of groundswell of thinking and movement towards greater automation because of regulation, but because of also the impacts of COVID. I definitely agree with that. We've definitely seen a drive towards market efficiencies as a result. I think that's a good point about how that relates to COVID because this certainly is an abnormal year for all of us. And I don't know whether we ever feel like we have a normal year, but this year in particular has felt obviously more abnormal. So it's nice to hear that there is perhaps some positive coming out of everything that we have going on. So I know we're not out of the woods in terms of implementing SFTR fully. We could look ahead a little bit and maybe get a perspective on SFTR-like regulation in other jurisdictions. What parts of what we've already done and accomplished could possibly be applicable to any potential future regulations? I think SFTR is very likely to become a global regulation. What we can see is that with the FSB framework that's been published so far, reporting is intended to be at a global level and monitored at a global level to ensure that another crisis doesn't emerge as we've seen historically. But it's very difficult to determine what that's going to look like on a jurisdictional basis. One of the things that we saw in EMIR is that different regulators had different interpretations and implemented the regulation differently. It might be that some regulators move towards a monthly snapshot because the FSB is a monthly snapshot report. So I think it would be interesting to see how various regulators and various countries do implement the regulations. And it's something that we are anticipating will extend throughout the duration of the next few years. Yeah, the way we've approached it from a service provision perspective is exactly that. We always, given it was FSB requirements and encompassed the very least 20 countries, The way we built it was effectively to get all data in from our counterparties and then determine what was reportable under the existing SFTR European regime. So what we built, I think it was sensible, was almost a future-proof model that, you know, let's say South Africa come into play or, or Switzerland, then it's more of a matrix amendment to enable reporting of those transactions to whichever regulator requires them. So if we could look ahead a little bit, And I'll ask you a question around potential uses of the data. So the original intent was a global mandate to monitor systemic risk in this particular part of the industry. But surely there are other things, other uses for the data, other things we could do with it. In your opinion, what's your perspective on how the data could and should be used by all participants as well as regulators? 
So I think the amount of data that we're seeing is quite interesting. Before now, the market has really relied on the ICMA surveys to give a good indication of the size of the market, especially around repos. And actually, we're learning quite a lot from the data that we're receiving. We're learning the genuine size, how many trades are traded on the exchanges versus bilateral, how big the SEC lending market is in comparison to the repo market. And there is quite a lot that we're gaining from the information that we're receiving just as an understanding of trading patterns and the size of the market as a whole. I think what we'll see is greater scrutiny as we move towards CSDR. I think it's quite likely in the future that all firms will look into ways that they can reduce risk. Perhaps there'll be more clearing within the market. That's definitely something we saw in EMEA, although there was a mandatory clearing mandate in EMEA. As we move in towards CSDR, we're going to start looking at counterparties differently and not just looking at the amount of monetary value that we can make off of different reports, but actually what's the risk of trading with these individual counterparties? Is the risk of settlement and settlement failures mean that trading patterns are going to change and actually we'll start seeing a divergence in the nature of firms where those that default less and are subject to less mandatory buy-ins are higher rated and more liquid than trading with other entities that might not necessarily be quite as robust. Yeah, I totally agree. And I guess if I put my practitioner's hat back on, which was a few years ago now, dating myself, but back in those days before SFTR and and incoming CSDR, operational performance of a counterparty was important, but probably lower down the rankings in comparison to risk weighting and revenue opportunities, etc. I think the really interesting thing we're going to see with CSDR is actually the operational effectiveness of a counterparty really starting to determine who and what and why you transact with certain counterparties, i.e. if they're continually failing or failing to deliver recalls or manage lifecycle events poorly, then that can start having a significant impact on P&L. And I guess ultimately is the reason for the regulation to really put that feedback loop in place. So it sounds to me like we need to do another podcast post-CSDR and revisit all of our perspectives and forecasts of what we said today. So Phil and Catherine, thank you very much for your perspective, your insight, your expertise. I think our listeners will really appreciate all of your sage comments. So thanks for tuning in to another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance. We're very happy to bring you these podcasts as a further education amongst members in the global securities finance community, both in terms of business education and career development. If you have suggestions for future topics or speakers, please reach out to Women in Securities Finance, and you can subscribe to future episodes of the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you to our listeners for listening, and thank you especially to our guest speakers today, Catherine Talks and Phil Morgan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us.